that verse 44 is the negative counterpart from verse of verse 37. On the one hand, you have people who come to Christ and believe and are promised eternal life and resurrection. And on the other hand, you have people who are said cannot come unless a certain condition is met. And that condition is not one met by human ability, but rather it is met by the Father Himself in drawing people to Christ. Both are promised to be raised up on the last day. Now the combination of both of these verses is a work of grace. Not grace bestowed on every individual without exception, but A selective grace bestowed on those who are gifts to the Son, given by the Father. It is a deliberate act of God bringing people to Christ. There's more here than just simple moral influence taking place. God does not deliberate with people or seek to sway their opinion of Him. To bring them to Christ. He does not bargain with people. Nor they him. It is a divine act of drawing people. Who were chosen before the creation of the world. To their appointed destination. Which is Christ Jesus. Now we began looking at verse 44. And uh, verse 44 really explains Not only the heart of man, but it also explains the heart of God. First of all, there is a natural inability. An inability of the natural person to believe Christ. Notice the words, no one can come to me. The reason... He makes this statement because Jesus knows the condition of the human, of the human soul. He knows that the, the spirit of man is dead in sins and trespasses. He knows that man cannot, cannot come on his own initiative. In fact, it is impossible for them to come and impossible for them to believe. And he tells them, essentially, These people he's speaking to, these Jews in the synagogue there at Capernaum, he's telling them essentially, you are not of those whom the Father brings to me. You are not among those that he has chosen to give to me. Shocking words. Shocking words even today. For it takes, what it does is it takes... It knocks the props out from under our pride. It's human pride that wants to have a say in eternal things. And God will not allow that kind of pride to work. And so it it removes all of that for every person who thinks that he can come to God or get to God on his own. And quite frankly, we need our pride knocked out from under us. For we are by nature proud people. We think that we are independent. We think that we are self-determining. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
It is God doing his work of choosing and saving his own. This creates a sense of humility in the individual who by divine rights are given insight into the situation, their situation before God, the God of the universe. When a person comes to understand that they are a lost sinner in need of salvation, in need of Christ, that is a divine act. It's not somebody just simply coming to their senses. Nobody has those kind of senses. That's the first thing we see. An inability of the natural man to believe in Christ. Second, and this is where we left off last week. There is a supernatural taking of people into divine custody. Now that sounds a a little bit harsh, doesn't it? It is anything but... Harsh. Look at that second phrase in verse 44. He says, Unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless. The word unless is a one of the most beautiful words of Scripture. For it gives hope that where there, where there would be no hope. It's right up there with, but God in Ephesians 2 verse 4. When he says we are dead in trespasses and sins. And then he says, but God. You see, if God didn't intervene, we would all be lost. No one would ever come. No one would ever believe. Because that's not what man wants. We have no will to come to Christ while dead in our sins and trespasses. And we see that in Ephesians chapter, we saw that in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. We are not able to please God in our fallen nature. Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's plain. So we can't come, we can't see, we can't believe unless... And so the condition is given by the Lord that does make it possible. And I say possible, it's not the best term. That does make it effectual. That does make it an actuality to be able to come to Christ and find life. It is the Father's drawing So what exactly, the word draws is an interesting word. So what does it exactly mean that the Father draws people to Christ? The word draws is the Greek word helkuo, which means to draw or drag, to drag off. Uh, Metaphorically, it means to draw by an inward power or to lead To compel by an irresistible superiority. You remember when Jesus was on the way to the cross, to Calvary and he was carrying a cross and he fell under the load of it. What did they do? They found a man by the name of Simon and they compelled him to carry his cross by a superiority of That was beyond his ability to say no. 
the word is used eight times in the New Testament. And so what I thought we would do is look at a few of those instances to get us, give us an idea of just exactly what it looks like when the Father draws an individual to Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 21. You know the story. Jesus, after his resurrection, the disciples had gone fishing. They were out on the, the boat. They were near the shore. They had fished all night. They'd caught nothing. And Jesus was on the shore and he said, cast your nets on the other side. Verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. You see the word haul? Same word for draws. So you have this idea of a fishing net being pulled or drawn in by the by the force or the power of men's hands or arms. Verse 11, look at verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. In other words, they couldn't pull it all in. So Simon got into the boat and helped them pull or drag this net out of the water with all those fish in it. So they hauled it in. This is a picture of God's work of drawing people to Christ. God's net of grace never tears. It always hauls in the catch that he intended for it to have. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. Notice verse... Notice verse 19. Acts chapter 16... We have uh, Paul and Silas. Verse 19, he says, uh, when they were in prison, they were going to the place of prayer. They were met by a slave girl, verse 16, who had a spirit of divination and brought her to her owners, much gained by his fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, don't you love that? That the Apostle Paul was able to be annoyed. We think of Paul as just not, he just didn't have any kind of problems, did he? Yeah, he got annoyed. And he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Notice verse 19. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. They dragged them. 
Same word for draws in verse 44. So you have this idea of them being taken or dragged off to the magistrates. Turn over to chapter 21. Chapter 21, and verse 30, Paul is in the temple, he is arrested, and when all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple at once, and the gates were shut. They dragged him out. Now you needn't turn to this last one. I'll just read it for you. James chapter 2 verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppose you the ones who drag you into court? Why do you get dragged into court? The person suing you doesn't come and physically lay hold on you and drag you into court. What they do is they use a superior power. They use the law. They use servants of the law. And they they literally drag you into court. You have to go. It's a, by a superior force. This is the idea of the word draws. When the father draws. Now this sounds like, that all these instances sound like a very strong or even violent coercion. But it is not like that with the father's drawing. It is obviously more than a moral influence that's being exerted. The father does not. People have the idea that the father is beckoning people. Oh, please come to me. Please come. Or wooing people to come to to Christ. Uh, I just wish they would come. You know, and he's like he's wringing his hands. Why don't they come? Uh, if they would only come, you know, like he can't do anything about it. That is not the picture that we have here. That would be like standing before a casket and beckoning or wooing a dead corpse. Well, it's not going to do anything because it's dead. Rather, the Father powerfully influences the mind and the will and the heart, even the entire personality in the drawing process. He works with the newly born mind and will of the sinner, not against it. The Father does not drag people kicking and screaming into the kingdom. He does not drag them unwillingly to Christ. He works in in them in the new birth to make their will work to want to come to Christ. And so he draws them, having their made their sinful minds and rebellious hearts willing to come and believe in Christ. It's during that drawing process that the Father gives a new and living faith to the sinner. And Christ is accepted where he could not have been and would not have been before. However, 
through this whole process, the, the, the work of God and the strength of God and the power of God is so effective that the one being drawn actually arrives at Christ. That's why Jesus said, all that come to me, I'll never cast them out. Because why? Because it's the Father bringing them. It's the Father drawing them to the Son. And when the Father brings them to the Son, the Son receives them. And He never misses. He has a perfect record. That means that this is not a potential salvation, but rather it is an actual salvation that it's occurring. This is all coupled with God's irresistible call of grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, in verse, in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, he, he tells what happens in the salvation process. Now follow with me in this. He says in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Well, the, what, what is that? That's the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. Nobody, hear me carefully, nobody is saved without the gospel being preached, either in print or by word. Nobody's saved by looking up at the stars. And thinking, wow, that's great order. Somebody must have done all this and then they're saved. That doesn't happen that way. The gospel has to be involved. We preach Christ crucified. Now listen to what he says. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So to the Jew... The gospel was simply something that got in the way that they stumbled over. To the Gentile nations, it was foolishness. Verse 24. But those, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, before Saving grace takes hold of the heart. Christ is nothing more than a roadblock to a selfish life of sin. He is that one who is keeping you from having all that fun that you want to have. That's the way the world thinks about it. And so in their minds, in their darkened minds, that is a foolish thing. Why would I want somebody to come into my life and take away all that I desire to do and have? That's the way one thinks before salvation occurs. But when God calls the sinner to Christ and inexorably draws him or her to Jesus, he then becomes life. He then becomes the wisdom that was missing. He becomes the power to live, truly live, where life had not existed before. He takes, he then, he he then takes first place and all of life revolves around him. He becomes the power and the wisdom that was before foolishness and considered a barrier to life. He is no longer seen that way. 
You remember how how you how you saw life so differently when you came to know Christ? So here's the summary. The Father gives people to the Son, verse 37. The Father draws those selected people to the Son, verse 44. The same people come to the Son, verse 35, 37, 44. The Son keeps the people that are given to Him by the Father, verses 37, 39. And Jesus promises to raise these same people up in resurrection on the last day. Now, to show that his teaching is consistent with the Old Testament, he quotes the prophet Isaiah from chapter 54, verse 13. And your children shall all be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. That's Isaiah 54. Isaiah's prophecy teaches exactly the same thing that Jesus taught when he said in verse 44 that all that the Father gives me will come to me, but the Father is the one who draws them, and I'll raise them up on the last day. So after quoting Isaiah's passage, he paraphrases what the prophet is actually saying. And that next statement, he says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So not only is the coming the Father's drawing, but the coming is also the Father's teaching. It's the Father that illuminates the dead heart and brings it to new life regenerates the heart so that now the person can see that they are a lost sinner before God and see Christ as the Savior and the Lord. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 8, if you would. Hebrews chapter 8. You can also compare this to Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34 at another time. Hebrews 8, verses 10 and 11. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them on their hearts, and they will, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So who are these that the Lord is teaching? They are the ones who are supernaturally enlightened by the Father. This whole group of the ones who come to Christ are the ones who are are brought to spiritual understanding and come to God's Messiah because they now see and hear and understand not only about themselves, but also about God's grace particularly given to them. 
Now, the new believer really doesn't know the theology behind all this, and they don't need to know the theology behind it. All they need to know is that they're lost sinners and they and that they need to repent of their sins and trust Christ. But that's exactly what they do. It is given to them through the gospel. I remember a few years back I used to work at the I used to work down at the jail here at Sherburne County. And I would go in and, and teach the prisoners in the pods and I went in one day and they paired me up with uh, with a fellow and we were talking to this gentleman and he he was a diabetic and and all of a sudden, uh, this fellow that I was with said, "Oh, you should stop taking your medicine and just just uh, have faith that God will God will heal you and and so on and so on." And he and he and then he started quoting a passage from Romans chapter ten. And I was sitting there and I thought, "What am I going to do?" Well, I couldn't let that go. And so I said, uh, this is the passage, listen to what he says. What does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. And he stopped right there. See, the word of faith, that's what will heal you, he said. And I, I, I opened my mouth, as I sometimes do. Got myself into trouble. That was the last time I taught at that jail. Because this is the rest of what it says. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus as is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I said, this is not talking about healing. This is talking about Salvation. This is talking about believing. The word of faith is that which God gives you, is that which God teaches you about Christ and about yourself and your sin. Ooh, he didn't like that at all. That same passage down in verse... 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I said the context here is not healing or, or, or anything else. It's, it's salvation. How will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they had not heard? How will they hear unless someone preaches? How will they preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who spread the gospel of peace. The gospel of the good news. It's about the gospel. Jesus is doing much the same with these Jews. Who thought that they were the guardians of scriptural truth. That they were the only ones who had the true knowledge of scripture. But if they had known the scriptures. They would have come to Christ. They would have believed in Him already. The expression in verse 45 in no way indicates that mere knowledge or intellectual advancement will put power in the hands of men to affect their own salvation. 
Both the positive and the negative here are stated. William Hendrickson writes, It is God who draws before man comes. It is He who teaches before man listens and learns. Unless the Father draws, no one can come. That is the negative side. The positive is, everyone who listens to the Father and learns of Him will come. Grace always conquers. It does what it is set out to do. And in that sense, it is irresistible. Irresistible grace doesn't mean that grace can't be resisted. It simply means that when it's resisted, God can override the resistance and bring men to Christ. In verse 46, Jesus continues to inform them that He had come from the Father in heaven. He came not to change or annul the Scriptures, but to fulfill them. And as Messiah, He has the authority to speak not only for the Father, but as God in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Anyone making such a claim would be a liar and quickly discredited if it were not true. This was something the Jews were never able to do. They were never able to discredit Jesus. They had to trump up charges in a mock, in a fake trial to secure his crucifixion. He was stating who he was in no uncertain terms. He had been with and had seen the Father from all eternity. No one else could make that claim. That's why he says, no one has seen the Father, except he who's with the Father. John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's Christ. 1 Timothy 6 verse 16, he alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So again, Jesus reaffirms that He is the bread of life. That this bread, who He is, does what no other bread can do. It gives eternal life. Now having already spoken earlier about Moses and the manna in the wilderness... Jesus alludes to it again to illustrate the difference between their forefathers and what they had eaten and what he was offering. Verse 49, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. The manna had no ability to extend life other than to extend it temporarily And physically. The idea here is that even when God provides physical bread, that physical bread will not sustain or give life that never ends. Death is inevitable. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews asked. 
Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Even those that ate of the manna that did not believe in God died in the wilderness in their sin. Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. There are plenty of people who are presuming upon God, thinking that He will somehow receive them based upon their own idea of how good or, or whatever they are. So what is he saying? He's saying that even those who ate the manna in the wilderness and saw God's miraculous provision did not believe and they died in the wilderness in their sin. That's what he's saying. These Jews did not respond to what he's saying here. And so he takes another step of deeper meaning. I am the only bread, in essence he's saying, I am the only bread that sustains life for eternity. But I am also the bread that originates life. He is the origin of life. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread, verse 32. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. He sustains. He keeps life going. And he always will. The life that you have now in Christ will never end. Your body may die and go back to the dust. But the life that he gives you is eternal. And it will never end. And that we can be thankful for. Now, the next part of this passage in John, Jesus takes another step and another level and uh, he actually says that you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood or you have no life in you. What does that mean? Well, some have corrupted that passage. To think that this communion is what he's talking about. And that is not what he's talking about. But that's for next week. So that's where we go then. All right.